And now as we move into a time to hear God's word preached, would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 1? This morning we'll be in verses 11 through 24. When I was in high school, uh, it was remarkable how one day my life changed radically. There was a moment in time when I realized that nothing would ever be the same. Things were going to be different now. I was a senior in high school, and life was turned on its head. I was granted an incredible freedom with just one tweak to my life. It was 2005, and I got my first cell phone. Do you remember getting your first cell phone? You remember back then when we used to use them to call people? That was an incredible day. But those were the days. Well, for me and, and everyone then, if you don't recall, we were tethered at that point to a landline. That means that you could only be called and you could only call other people if you were at home. Some of you don't remember that, but that's a hard reality of the life that I suffered. <laughs> but now, at that moment, I had real freedom. Life had changed. I sometimes wonder how we existed before cell phones. If you know, don't spoil it for me. Just bask in how different life is now. Well, the cell phone radically changed my life. But we can take an advancement like the cell phone or many others in our era. They come so quickly now. And we can assume that they are more transformative than they really are. See, the cell phone, as big a deal as it was, didn't do much internally to release me from my awkward and goofy phase that I was going through as a senior in high school. It was not all that radically transformative on the inside. It just made me a little more accessible. And as we hear about the gospel and we even hear people describe it in radical terms, we can be tempted to think of the gospel as in line with a new cell phone or some other new piece of tech. That comes out. See, change is so frequent in our culture that the gospel risks being undersold as just another innovation alongside many others. Something that can improve our life and make it maybe just a little bit better in one or two areas. But Paul, in his letter to the Galatian churches, describes the gospel as something that is truly radical and totally different than anything that has come before it. Read with me to yourself as I read out loud Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24, and bear witness to Paul's testimony to his conversion. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. 
But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. In this section of the letter, Paul is describing the gospel in radical terms. He says that it's not like any other message because it comes from God. And that its work is applied by God. And that the result of it is transformation with staggering change. Resulting in nothing that the world has to offer. Because while cell phones and technology do result in outward change, the gospel results in radically new affections and appetites. The reality that we see here in this passage is that there is nothing more radical than the gospel. But do we really believe the gospel to be as radical as the Bible reveals it? Because in Galatians 1, Paul unpacks the gospel in truly radical fashion, giving us his testimony to how it turned his life upside down. Now, I don't know how you view the gospel this morning. Maybe it's a piece of information to you. Maybe it's a story. But my hope is this morning that God would cause you through the preaching of his word to see the gospel as the most radical thing in this world. Did you catch that? The most radical thing in this world. Now, that sounds like an exaggeration, but I hope that you will see it as that truly radical. Not because I'm persuasive, but because the gospel is God's message, because it is applied by God. And because it is transformative because of the application of it. So before we begin, ask yourself, how radical is your gospel? Is it to be categorized in your life alongside other innovations and self-improvement strategies? Is it like an umbrella that sits in the closet until there's a rainy day and you have need of it? Or maybe you treat the gospel like a day at the spa. Something that you refer to from time to time for refreshment, but with no function in the real world? Is it radical enough to transform you truly, to transform you in the way that you parent your children, to transform you in the way that you love others? Is it radical enough to heal scars from the past? Is it radical enough to change your appetites away from addiction, away from sin, and the weight of the world that tempts you away from God? How radical is your gospel? Well, Paul reveals three ways that the gospel is radical beyond comparison. Number one, the gospel is so radical that it is conceived apart from you. Paul begins by writing, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. As we look at the churches of Galatia, we can infer that some have come into that church who have questioned the gospel that Paul has preached. And they have questioned it by directly contradicting it. And when two people divide and when good people want to remain faithful, 
There's always going to be a question of whose message is valid. So the people of Galatia find themselves desiring to remain consistent, desiring to remain faithful, but they want to know whose message is valid here. Well, in Paul's case, then, he does not bother in this letter to engage them by arguing with them at the point of disagreement. Do you notice that? At least not at this point in the letter. Paul goes straight to their presuppositions. Well, what do I mean by presuppositions? What I mean is that thing that their argument rests upon. The source that dictates why we know something is true. See, the reality is that inevitably we are all controlled by presupposition. We all have presuppositions that help us to frame our world. Now, that's not a bad thing, but it is something that we have to be careful of because we can easily let that perceived wisdom bleed into the revelation of God and taint his word. Some examples of that. Sometimes family can be a source of presupposition in our life. The the way that we grew up defines it. Now, I don't know what time you eat dessert in your family, but the right time to eat dessert is 9 o'clock, right before bed. But when I got married, I learned that not everybody does it that way because Hannah, in her wisdom, decided that the right time to eat eat dessert is directly following supper. And now I was caught between two worlds. I didn't know what to do. What time are we supposed to eat dessert? See, I presupposed that the right time to eat supper was 9 o'clock. I had to redefine my world around what my wife thought was right. And, of course, as the one who's making dessert, what do you do? My wife is making the dessert. I guess I'll eat it. And, of course, there's always the option to eat it again at 9 (laughs) o'clock. That was a presupposition in my life, that that was the right way to do it. But family can presuppose upon us in many other ways. Do you agree? Twist the way we think. Another example is our culture, right? Uh, We're very constrained by our culture in ways that we often don't realize until we travel abroad or to other parts of the country. And we see that our culture really does dictate the way that we think and the things that we do. Another way that our presuppositions are shaped is through tradition. Uh, You may have grown up in a very different church than this. For me, I grew up in a church that was a low view on worship. We came and gathered and sang a few songs and then heard the sermon preached, and then we left. But there's many other structures to our service here you may have noticed, and that's very different from me. And so my presupposition was that the way that I grew up was the right way to do that. And there's all kinds of variations within that that presuppose our thinking. Even reason itself can be a source of presupposition. that You can effectively create arguments by deciding what is most logical within your own head. But it presupposes that your internal reason will always lead you the right way in the end. And therefore you rest on what's internally going on in your head, just as you might rest on what your family taught you. Church, I wonder if we know how constrained we are to the things that are around us. It's difficult to even know the level that they define us. Do you agree? How much veneer of culture or family, or tradition taints the way that we operate. Our own reason that we lay over all of our thinking. 
your upbringing, your family life, the way you were parented, and myriads of other factors will dictate your presuppositions. And no one is truly free of that, no matter how hard we argue we aren't. Well, I wonder then if we know how much we need the gospel to be defined by something outside of ourselves. Something more than us and our mere thoughts. See, when your gospel is constrained to your faculties of reason, to your culture, your family, your tradition, it mutates into something else. At least it tends to. That's how we get churches compromising the gospel to embrace distracting and unbiblical doctrines or selling out on political victory as their only hope. And Paul warns just a few verses prior that these are no gospel at all because these gospels are built upon presuppositions. Maybe you say that you don't have a gospel at all, that that's not a problem for you. But I want to remind you that we're all constrained in two ways. The first is by presupposition. And the second is trying to justify our actions before someone else. And that ultimately ends up being God in the end. And that's your gospel. And that's defined by your presuppositions. But for our gospel to be relevant to our greatest need and centered on what is true universally, we need the gospel to be defined by something greater. You need the gospel to be defined outside of yourself. See, Paul says that the gospel that he preaches is not from him, but that it's totally out of the blue. Listen to how far Paul distances himself from the message in verse 11. He says, the gospel that was preached by me. He does not take any credit for it whatsoever. He does not say, this is my gospel. This is the one that I preached to you. No, this is the one that was preached by me. He knows that he would be a lousy foundation for the gospel. And so the explanation is simply constrained to the revelation of Christ. It's not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it. How? Through a revelation of Jesus Christ. We need the gospel to be founded on something greater. And the gospel of God is radical. Think of it. The nature of the gospel is that God would see the sinfulness of his creation. He would note the rejection of him as a holy God who created them. And instead of destroying them out of his righteous justice, God preserves his justice in a different way. He sends his perfect son to the cross to suffer and die so that those who believe in him might be freed from the death that they owed. That is a radical message. The gospel is so radical that it is conceived apart from you. It is of the wisdom of God that is far above you in your wisdom. It comes down from the councils of heaven before the foundation of the world. From within the secret council of eternity, within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What right do you have to access that, church? None is the answer. But it is revealed nonetheless, says Paul, through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Another way of saying what Paul is getting at here is that the gospel is so radical that you would not have thought of it. That theme is constant throughout Scripture. Paul says that we preach Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness 
to Gentiles. Something that no one would have thought of. We ought to then be very skeptical of our own hearts and of our own thinking apart from Scripture then because it is a certainty then that we are more affected by the presupposition of our culture and our reason more than we realize. And in our thinking apart from God's intervention. Now, we should not therefore try to apply our context to the gospel outside of Scripture. See, the doctrine of our day will pass away. After all, it's happened before. Here we are 2,000 years from the revelation of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And we are still preaching it. Church, how many false gospels have come and gone in that span? And yet I'm encouraged when I read Paul and the classic confessions of the church that I find unity in those things. That the gospel that I preach is still the gospel that the church believed 2,000 years ago. Church, let's admit that we're constrained to presupposition. That the things that we worry about today, though, will be forgotten problems in 100 years and probably less. The gospel is so radical that it is conceived apart from you. But the gospel is so radical that it, it, it is conceived apart from you as essential as that truth is to your understanding. It's just the beginning for Paul. Because he springboards off that idea to say, number two, that the gospel is so radical that it is applied apart from you. The gospel is so radical that it is applied apart from you. Paul continues in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. And he begs the question. Who is the origin of God's call to salvation? Is it him or is it me? Paul takes the radical nature of the gospel that is conceived from Christ and then he applies it to that conclusion. That Paul did not come to it naturally. We may be willing to confess that the gospel comes from God, but often we want to put ourselves in the position of choosing God in it. But not only does that not fit with what Paul is saying, it's really not all that radical. That we could turn to it. See, Paul is a perfect case study in our attempts to come to the gospel because he ends up re- representing two broad categories that our human minded gospels tend to create. See, on the one hand, we can be like Paul, who says and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. Paul in that category is trying to earn his way back to God through rigid obedience, through building up his own righteousness. If I do enough right to please God a certain way, I can come back to God. Can you relate to that? If I can do enough right. Or as is the ironic case with Paul, we can end up on the other side of the coin and we can be total lawbreakers. Paul says, I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. So, see, Paul's zeal for the law actually led him to be a worse sinner. One who tried to destroy the church. One who murdered the church. And some of us can feel that way. We have sinned to such an extent that God could never forgive me. We utterly fail at keeping his law and our system collapses. So we reframe it in a way that that doesn't matter. And that a loving God, he he won't care what I've done anyway. 
And so you see, we put ourselves on one side of the scale or the other, a total law keeper or one who is totally lawless before a holy God. We assume that the gospel is built upon that plane. And in that, we assume that the gospel just exists to advance us a little bit further on that line in one way or the other. But the gospel does not reorient you on that line. It breaks the line in half. See, we haven't just failed to think of the right things to bring about the gospel in our lives. As if we could figure out what the gospel is about. We don't have the ability to come back to God at all. The gospel is so radically God's that God must apply it. Another way of saying that is to say that the gospel is so radical that you could not come to it if you wanted to. The Bible does not present our situation as if there's a life raft that you're reaching out to as you're floating aimlessly in the ocean. You're losing your grip. You're about to drown. And you reach out and grab on. That's not an accurate picture of what God reveals about us at all. That assumes that you could figure it out. That assumes that you could come to the gospel on your own. On the contrary, Scripture says that you are a dead person. One who had already drowned. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, even when we were dead made us alive together with Christ. That's the power of God to bring you back to his gospel. And the power is radically out of your hands to reach back to God. You may be alive physically here today. I can vouch for that. But we are all dead in our ability to come back to God. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 15. He needs a different hope, one that's outside of himself reaching back. Within his efforts, he says, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. See, Paul, even Paul, the author of most of the New Testament, the greatest church planter and evangelist that the church has ever known, does not assume that God saved him out of some merit or some strategic advantage. God's election of Paul is set before he's even born, before he had done anything. But Paul doesn't leave it right there as if it's some good knowledge to have floating around in our heads. He offers security to you in that. And God called me by his grace. Why? Verse 16 says, because he was pleased to reveal his son to me. Why did God do it if it was out of yours, mine or Paul's merit or choice? He did it simply out of his own pleasure. Notice that word, pleased. God was pleased to do it. What does it take to please a holy God? Can you do enough to please a God who made all things? Can you earn favor with him? Can you know enough to come to God? He has all things and he knows all things. But Paul says that the thing that pleases God, the thing that makes God smile is to take men and women like me, like you, like Paul, murderers of the church, people who think we can earn God's favor on our own, people who are captivated and trapped by our sin and our stuff. And what makes him smile is to rescue 
you from that. God is pleased to bring dead people to life. That's it. Is that hard to believe? You bet it is. That's why we constantly try to put ourselves back on that line and earn God's favor. But imagine for a moment that this concept wasn't true and what that might mean. Maybe God did choose his people based upon something they did. Maybe even in some contrived scheme where we reject a biblical definition of God's knowledge in favor of one where he reaches down through time and looks to see who will choose him. What if that was the case? Well, if that was true, what what happens when I waffle? What happens when I turn from God to something else, as I often do? You know yourself well enough, don't you? Would God sit in heaven and wonder if the sacrifice of his perfect son was worth it to rescue this man? Would he consider undoing the gospel? This compromise of God opens up very hopeless possibilities that aren't very radical at all. It places God on the plane of thinking that the gospel destroys. Namely, that you can earn God's election. To put it positively, though, God's election redeems God's love in our minds. And it makes his love totally unconditional. And not allowing for change based on anything that you do. Church, your position with God cannot be fixed upon what you do because the gospel is fixed upon what Christ has done. And it was sealed before you were born or did anything. That's gospel grace. That's gospel hope. And that's what Paul is resting on. You are freed to be who you are because you are loved by God as his child if you are believing in him. Rest in that reality. Because that will propel you as life tosses you to and fro. The gospel is so radical that it is conceived apart from you. The gospel is so radical that it is applied apart from you. And finally, the gospel is so radical that it transforms your appetites for God. See, Paul continues the rest of this chapter suggesting that this radical gospel from God is applied by God to have very radical results in his life. See, the gospel results in real change in his people. See, in many ways, I'm an adult. But when it comes to green beans, I am not. What I mean by that is, I thought growing up that I would grow to love green beans because I just could not make myself eat them when I was a kid. But at 33 years old, nothing has changed. I still hate green beans. And no matter what I do to them, I cannot like them. Unless I drop about $20 worth of ingredients on top of them and change their flavor. But the reality of that is that I haven't changed. I've just added enough to it to make them different enough. But that's not what the gospel looks like in our life. The gospel transforms us to new appetites and new affections completely. It makes a person that hates green beans love green beans, for example. Though it's not often applied with green beans or maybe ever at all. (laughs) 
Note Paul, for example. Paul points out that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many his own age among his people. So extremely zealous was he for the traditions of his fathers. Here we have a guy who truly loves something. In this case, the traditions of his fathers. He had zeal for it, such zeal that it was driving him to murder others. It was what he thought about, sun up to sun down. He loved the law. Paul loved himself under the constraint of the law. And nowhere does Paul suggest that he's growing weary of the law. That's something that's working for him. But something changes with Paul very suddenly. That's what that but means in verse 15. It's the transition. There was a hard switch that flipped in Paul's life. There's a life before and there's a life after. Evidently, this is well known to the churches of Galatia. Paul is not who he used to be. Something radical has happened. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. One day, Paul was so zealous for the law that he was murdering people. And the next, in order that I might preach Christ among the Gentiles. What changed? The gospel changed him. Church, what sort of things are working for you in your life? What things can you relate to Paul on that? They, they do not need a tweak in your life. They need to be radically transformed. They must be changed, and that change must come by God. You cannot dump a load of new ingredients on top of them and change their flavor. Your appetites need to change. And that comes by repenting and believing in the work of Jesus. And that's not a one-time decision. That comes by daily repenting of those things and believing in Jesus. Church, do you have a former life? Has the gospel radically changed your affections for God? The answer is no. Turn to Christ this morning. Paul says that the gospel is so radical that it has transformed him Totally. How has the gospel transformed you? Have you believed in the radical nature of the gospel? Believe on the gospel this morning and be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the glory in it. Thank you that you have rescued sinners. And it is out of your wisdom that you have created a gospel that can save wicked and wretched people. Thank you that we do not have to fake it, that we do not have to pretend like we have it all together. And thank you that you are the one who seals your people as your own. Father, I pray that we would turn our affection to Christ as a result of your call on our life. Let it be true of us. Let it be true for your glory, for the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.